Today we're going to look at uh, David and Bathsheba, and I'm sure that all of us dislike and strongly dislike the idea of kind of dragging through some other, other guy's sin. And so I want to emphasize all the way through this talk that this particular incident is set up as a paradigm. It's set up as typical of every man and woman's sin. And all the way through the New Testament, there are at least 20 allusions back to this incident, trying to teach us that, in fact, what David did with Bathsheba is actually what every one of us has done. And his imputed righteousness that he received, uh, on which basis he, he was saved, uh, this is the basis for our redemption. And his repentance, therefore and thereby, becomes ours. Now, we have a whole mass of information in the Bible about this, this incident. We not only have 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where the actual uh, thing is, is, uh, is recorded, but uh, we have the Psalms, many Psalms, that are either consciously or, or directly or, let's say, indirectly alluding to, to all this. Psalm 32, Psalm 51 are the most well-known ones, but there's, there's several others. And so we, we have a whole mass of information in the scriptures about this, uh, this incident. Now, just to start off, I want to uh, have a look at Psalm 32, which uh, is David talking about the blessedness of the forgiveness that he has received. And he, he talks about the time when he kept silence. That is the time between the incident and the time when he repents, which is when, when the child dies. And there's no reason to think that the child died immediately on birth. Because it seems straight after the child dies, he sleeps with Bathsheba and she gets pregnant again. While assuming that she breastfed the child herself, that's pretty unlikely, uh, unless there had been a, a period of time, maybe six months or, or a year, during which uh, she had uh, breastfed the child and would become fertile again. If a woman's breastfeeding straight after birth, it's very unlikely that she would get pregnant immediately. Um, it's a real one percenter. So uh, it seems to me that there's a period of time, not just nine months, could well have been at least a year or two years between the sin and God's very trenchant comment in the, in the word there, that the thing David had done had displeased the Lord, uh, there's a gap between that and his repentance. When Nathan comes to him and he says, yes, I have sinned. And Nathan says, oh, God has forgiven your sin. So he says, Psalm 32, verse 3, when I kept silence, and that's in this uh, year or so period, maybe two years, my bones wax old through my roaring all the day long, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And he says that uh, God had lifted from him a heavy burden. That his, his sin was as a, as a burden that was too heavy for him to, to carry. And that he had been bowed down greatly as, as a result of this. So then... He felt that sin, the weight of it, the, the weight of that guilty conscience, very, very much as a, a burden, as a weight that he had carried. And so, when we read in the New Testament, 
Jesus saying, Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and my burden is light. It seems to me that he's referring back to David carrying the burden, the weight of this sin, and then it being lifted from him, that it was too heavy. So then all of you who are heavy laden, we're all David's with his sin, come to me, Jesus is saying. Then in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says, Whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already. This is the very language of David there we just read in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. Bathsheba was very beautiful to look upon. And David did just that. He looked upon her. Very often in the Psalms, we find David setting himself up as our patterns, as our example. And he sort of invites us in many of the Psalms to kind of sing them with him. He starts off in the first person, talking about himself, and then by the end of the Psalm, he's talking about all of us. Um, For example, uh, 2 Samuel 22, uh, verse 3, The God of my rock is my shield. Then verse 31, He is a shield to all them that trust in him. So he's... David's shield, and then he says, actually, he's the shield of all of his true people. Now, there in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This, I suggest, is a soliloquy. That is, David standing on his own, maybe one evening, just with that wow feeling about having been forgiven. He says, blessed is he, he's talking about himself, whose transgression is forgiven and sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit, he's talking about himself, there is no God. Now, that is quoted in Romans 4, and you might like to just have a look over there, because it's quoted with a difference. Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 6, Paul is talking about how righteousness has been imputed to us, and he's taking his uh, basis from Abraham and from David. He says, verse 6, Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man, that is any man, under whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, that's a slight change, because There in the Old Testament, what David said was, Blessed is he, talking about himself, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Here in Romans 4, Blessed are they, whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. In other words, David there is every one of us who experiences imputed righteousness in Christ. And third, Psalm 32, verse Verse 2, we just read, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. Paul has said, that's every man in Christ, and in whose spirit there is no God. That is, after he had sinned, he was counted as if there was no guile within him. Now, that's quoted. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their iniquities unto them. So, the world, the believing world, their iniquities are not imputed unto them. Blessed is the man, David, unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. This is all of us. And then we read that because of that imputed righteousness that David felt, 
He feels that in his spirit there is no God. And that's picked up in the New Testament. Revelation 14 verse 5, talking about the faithful, In their mouth was found no God, for they are without fault before the throne of God. How they get in that position? Because they're in Christ. 1 Peter 2.22, In him there was no God, found in his mouth. That is imputed, that is counted to all those that are in him. All that is true of the Lord Jesus becomes true of all those that are baptized into him and clothe themselves with him. And yet all this started with the experience of David, when he feels this imputed righteousness to him to such an extent that he can say that in him he feels he has a spirit in which there is no guile at all. And so he goes on, uh, Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. He's saying that his forgiveness is a pattern for joy for all of us. Now, of course, that implies, it demands, that the intensity of forgiveness, uh, uh, of repentance, rather, which he experienced, has got to be ours. And this is quite a challenge. He says in Psalm 51, verse 1, which seems to be uh, a more lengthy statement from him about his guilt in 2 Samuel 12, you just read him saying, I have sinned. And Nathan says, that's all right, you're forgiven. And it almost sounds too, too quick and easy, but it wasn't that painless, because Psalm 51 is a statement of how David felt and his confession of sin. And he says there, uh, Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. And Jesus takes those words and puts them in the mouth of the publican. In Luke 18, verse 13, beats upon his breast and says, God, have mercy upon me. He's actually, Jesus has put in his mouth, that the words of Psalm 51, verse 1, of David confessing sin. And of course, the Lord's point is there's two categories of people. There's the publican who who won't lift up his eyes to heaven and beats his breast and says, Have mercy upon me, O God. And there's the hypocrite, who thanks God he's not as other men. It's like the parable of the prodigal son, so-called, or the parable of the elder brother. There's only two categories of people. There's the big-time sinner that repents, and there's the self-righteous, who is left outside the house of God in the end. It's like another parable where the Lord says there were two sons. And they're both told to go and work in the vineyard. One says, I go, sir, and didn't go up himself, self-righteous, says he's okay, but isn't. And the other one, he says, no, I shall not. But he afterward repented and went. So we have a, a choice of who do we want to, to be? We can either be the self-righteous, who's not going to be saved in the end, or we can be the desperate sinner. But Peter appeals to his audience to repent and be baptized, Acts 3.19, that your sins may be blotted out. This is, again, the idea of blotting out, blotted out sins. This is David after his experience with Bathsheba. Uh, because again, Psalm 51, uh, verse 1, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And Peter quotes that and says, Come on, everybody, repent, so that your sins may be blotted out. You crowd of people, thousands of people, you're all little Davids out there. 
Now, reading through the, the Psalms as a book, or the Psalms of David, I, I should say, it seems that you can almost tell the ones that were written before the experience with Bathsheba and the ones that were written afterwards. The ones that were written before, uh, let's take an example, Psalm 26. Verse 1, he, he says things like, um, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I have not wavered. It's all rather self-righteous. He says in verse 12, My foot has not slipped. I stand in the congregation, etc. Verse 5, I have hated the congregation of evildoers. I will not sit with sinners. I won't break bread with sinners, is what he's saying. And he says how he, he can't stand those in whose hand is mischief. Sounds like him. Uh, and yet he, he does talk in these psalms also uh, about his need for salvation. Verse 11, 26, redeem me, be merciful unto me. It's not as if any human being is saying, well, I didn't sin at all. He's saying, oh, sure, yeah, I'm a sinner, redeem me, be merciful to me, but... I'm pretty righteous, a bit like Job. But after the theme of Bathsheba, the Psalms are somewhat different. For example, Psalm 30, verse 6, David says, In my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. And if you've got Psalm 36, 30, verse 6 open there, you might like to scribble down next to that, Psalm 26, verse 10, where David has said in that earlier psalm, my foot has not slipped. And now he says, well, in my arrogance and in my self-assuredness, I said earlier that my foot shall not slip. But then Psalm 30 goes on, verse 7, Lord, by your grace you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, this is in the period between his sin and his repentance, you hid your face and I was troubled. I cried to you, Lord, now to the Lord I made supplication. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. This is similar language to Psalm 26 where he kind of says, O and P.S., please have mercy upon me and redeem me. Now he realizes the need for that redemption in a quite different kind of way. So that this is what will put meaning into our words, into our Bible reading, into the the words that we sing in praise, if we have really had a conviction of, of our personal sinfulness, if we have repented, then the phrases that we might have used before about forgiveness and sin and grace, etc., etc., all this stuff suddenly takes on a real meaning. It's like Job. He went through the same process. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. It was all theory. But now my eye sees you. And this is where God wants to bring every single one of us. To have a real relationship with him, to, to have put meaning into the words that we have sent. Now in Psalm 32, verse 6, David said, For this, because of his experience of sin and forgiveness, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto you in a time when you may be found. Everyone that is godly. It's amazing. Everyone who has sinned like David, and that is every one of us, they are godly. 
God-ward, those who look towards God, everyone that is God-ward, that is looking towards God, that is Godly, will pray unto God in a time when you may be found. So he's saying that we also will find God just as David found God through his experience of forgiveness. Now, we see this in human relationships, do we not? That when you have had a fallout, great or small, and then there is reconciliation, that there is a, it's a wonderful thing. It is the most, almost one of the most wonderful of human experiences within human relationships. And this is the same between us and God. So then David found God through his experience of sin. And again, when Jesus says, Matthew 7 verse 7, Seek and you shall find, is he not referring to this incident? Because seek and you shall find does not mean, well, this is a blank check, you ask what you want and you shall get it. You know? Like when I was a kid, dear God, with screwed up eyes, clenched fists, clenched, uh, you know, in prayer, like Gustave Doré, like those engravings. Dear God, please make it so that when I open my eyes, I shall see, it's five quid in those days, uh, five pound or five quid or whatever, on the floor. And I, I believed, I'm telling you, I, I believed. But I opened my eyes and there was no five quid there on the floor. So, seek and you shall find doesn't refer to material things. It can't do, we all know that. But I think it refers to this. You seek God, really, in forgiveness, in, in his forgiveness, through repentance, after the pattern of David, and you will find him. And that is a blank check promise. So we find God. But, in the New Testament, and it's a wonderful but, it talks about finding God and him finding us in the day when Jesus returns, 2 Timothy 1.18, to find mercy of the Lord in that day, 2 Peter 3.14, that we may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Philippians 3.9 and 10, that Paul says that I might be found in him when he comes. And yet we can find him in those moments of repentance and experienced forgiveness. We have in those moments a foretaste of our acceptance in God's kingdom. In that sense, we can start to experience the kingdom life now. How? Through our response to our sinfulness in the right way. Now he says... I have sinned in your sight. This is Psalm 51, verse, verse 4. I have sinned, he says, before you in, in, in your sight. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now that's picked up in the parable of the prodigal son, where he comes back and says, I have sinned in your sight. So the prodigal was David, and yet the prodigal is every one of us. If it's not you, if you're not the prodigal, who's gone, you know, spent to squander the father's inheritance, then who are you? You are the elder son. You are up yourself. And you will end up outside God's kingdom. Sorry, but that's what the parable is saying. Now, 
Out of all this, God worked. And this is wonderful. But God does not turn away from human sin and disgust and say, see you later, guys. You did that, I'm out of here. Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. So then, God wins both ways. He wins, of course, if you like, of his name, his glory, his principles, win through our obedience and righteousness, and they win through our failures. Because through all this, he is justified and glorified. It's amazing. And our response to human sin, which we encounter all the time in the failures of other people, our response to human sin should be likewise. So, what did David do with this experience of forgiveness? Well, Psalm 51, verse 13, he says, Please forgive me, then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. So, on the basis of his experience of forgiveness, he vowed to teach sinners God's ways and to convert them unto him. And so Psalm 32 is headed, and these uh, titles of the Psalms are inspired, Masculine. That is, for teaching. This whole glorying in God's forgiveness of him is for teaching of others. And he says in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. Don't be like the horses, the mule, which have no understanding. But learn from this. And so, the basis of our witness should be, must be, our experience of God's forgiveness. The ecstasy that was in David, the liveness, the energy. Where does this come from? We, we lament I think, often, in our own conscience, that I don't seem to be on fire. How can I somehow get the message over to people? And typically, we think about preaching in terms of, oh yeah, I should invite people to our special lecture that's going on in our church. I should, uh, well, I should make some comment, shouldn't I, about the signs of the time, situation in the Middle East, situation with Israel, coming of Christ. And we all get a bit blocked up about this, or most people do. Uh, and it's difficult to do it. But if you really have experienced forgiveness, you will find a way to talk to people. Really, you will. I've seen it in so many people, uh, in my own life, that by knowing God, by finding Him in repentance and in forgiveness, you will find that ability, the most shut up, locked up, introverted person will find this. Somehow, love will find a way. Joy will find its expression. And we will break through those barriers and somehow we will build a bridge to people. Because everybody has a conscience. Everybody has an issue with their own sin and failure. Because people are people and they have conscience. Believe it, everybody does. Though it's not popular thing to talk about sin, failure and weakness, but actually people have got that, and they're carrying burdens that are too heavy for them, as David said. And Jesus lifts those burdens, as God lifted it from David. So having emphasised this, that David's sin and his repentance are basically ours, well let's 
look again, sadly, at, at this uh, miserable business. I don't think it was simply that. He's up there on the rooftop and he sees this girl next door and thinks, wow, so bring her up here. No, it, that's too simplistic. Remember, Uriah, uh, sorry, Nathan comes to him and gives him the parable and says, look here, David, there were two men in one city. That's David and Uriah in one city. Like, they're living in the same town. And she lived next door for crying out loud. I mean, he saw her, not over the garden fence exactly, but pretty well. And when he brings Uriah to his palace and, and gets him drunk and all that, well, Uriah's house is just next door. It's just down the end of the yard. Now, of course, they knew each other. Now, Uriah was, the, was one of David's mighty men. He obviously knew David. And this girl, it seems, had been this little ewe lamb that he brought up in the parable of Nathan uh, and cared for her. So she would have been with him. It was a strange relationship, admittedly, because she was the daughter of Eliam, who had been another of David's mighty men. Maybe he got killed, and Uriah kind of raised this, this kid as one of his daughters, and as she got older, he married her. So it was kind of uh, slightly odd, dysfunctional, maybe, relationship. They knew each other, these guys. They'd been together out there in the wilderness. They fought uh, together uh, against uh, Saul and, and the Philistines and all this stuff. So they knew each other. And when they say that, when they say to David, but this is the daughter, this is the wife of Uriah, when he says, you know, bring her to me, they're like saying, come on, David, you, you can't do this. She's like Uriah's wife. Now, there was, it seems to me, a mixture here of spirituality and, and sensuality. He lay with her, 2 Samuel 12, verse 4, for she was purified from her uncleanness. It's like he was thinking, well, I can't sleep with her now because she's unclean. Like, she's uh, menstruating and, get, and uh, still being cleansed from latest menstruation. It seems that he set up this precondition in his mind. Well, I, I must be obedient to the law. She's uh, unclean. She's still uh, in, in that uh, period after she's finished menstruating, where ritually she's unclean. But now she's finished. And this is the final washing from her uncleanness. As far as I can see in the law of Moses, she was not actually required to do that final washing. But she did it, I think, as an extra act of obedience. And I think it was that which particularly attracted David to her at that moment. And when he, we read that he inquired after her, that is actually the word normally used about inquiring of the Lord, of God. Now, we also read a rather strange statement in 2 Samuel 11 verse 4. She came in unto him and he lay with her. Everywhere in the Bible it's the other way round. A man comes in unto a woman. But she came in unto him, and he lay with her. It's the other way round. And I wonder if this is to balance, as it were, the, the blame a little bit. And of course, under the law, she was supposed to cry out if, she, if this happened in a city, if she was forced against her will in a city, and she, she doesn't do that. And of course, he says against 
the, the only have I sinned in Psalm 51 verse 4. I mean, I guess Uriah was dead, uh, so he, that didn't kind of count in that sense. But he, he feels that he sinned alone against God. And 1 Kings 15 verse 5 talks about th- this incident as the matter of Uriah. Uh, as if the sin was uh, not so much against Bathsheba, in the sense that I wonder if, if she was not willing. Now, what I'm trying to say is that sin, in our experience, I think, as believers, is not usually just a case of stealing our, ourselves to go and do that which is wicked in the eyes of God. It's more subtle. For example, getting away from the dramatics of adultery and fornication and that, gossip. We're in a conversation, a certain subject comes up, and there is a desire comes up within us to repeat something negative about another person to that person that we're talking to, to another person we're talking to. And in that split second, when we make the decision to talk, to say it or not, there comes this voice that says, well, actually, he needs to know this about him because, well, you know, he needs to know it for spiritual reasons. I'm actually doing uh, God and the brotherhood and Jesus a kind of favor by slandering this brother to this brother, by telling him some gossip. And it's only afterwards we look back and think, ah, I, I, I repeated gossip there. But in the moment in which we did it, we were kidding ourselves that this is exactly what I need to do. And this is, I think, where we are most likely to fail. And I think David's sin here is typical in that sense, that he he mixes sensuality with spirituality. And in that, I think, was the danger. It was not that he went out and picked up a prostitute. It was that whole thing was, was mixed together with, with, with worship of God and, and, and conscience toward God. That, you know, this business about her, uh, him sleeping with her for, because she was cleansed from her uncleanness. In chapter 12, verse 9 of 2 Samuel, Nathan tells him that he has despised the commandment of the Lord. And you might like to just scribble in your margin there by 2 Samuel 12 verse 9, despise the commandment of the Lord. You might like to scribble down there Numbers 15 verses 30 and 31, where we're told the soul that does anything presumptuously has despised the word of the Lord, that soul shall be utterly cut off. So what David had done was a sin of presumption, which is slightly different from adultery. Now, I'm not justifying, of course, adultery or murder, both of which David was without doubt guilty of. But more than that, it was the sin of presumption that he assumed that he was okay to do this. Now, in one of his reflections that we've already looked at in the Psalms about what he did, in Psalm 30, verse 6, he says that in my prosperity I said I shall never be moved. And I think that could mean, that is saying my my foot counts it, I am okay. And I wonder if he had misheard and misreflected upon the promises given to him in 2 Samuel 7, where God says, I will do this, that, and the other for you. And 
build your kingdom and you will see your, your son, your descendant, uh, ruling as my king and you shall see it, and, you know, the implication of resurrection, etc. As if he thought, well, God promised me I'm going to be saved, so I'm okay. I can't do anything wrong, everything shall be okay. And this was the sin of presumption, and that's why in Psalm 51, 16, he says, talking about a sin, you don't desire sacrifice for this sin or else I would give it. There was no sacrifice for the sin of presumption, which was incidental. The very sin that Saul had committed, he also had despised the word of the Lord and been rejected. And David finds that he's done exactly the same. So he was really in a, a bad state. He had done worse than adultery. Again, I am not justifying adultery or any form of sexual sin, but it was not, quote, simply that he had seen a pretty woman and gone running off with her. There's more to it than that. This is the sin of presumption. To despise God's word and to assume that I am okay before God, whatever. And so our sin that we commit is no less. That's what all those New Testament allusions we looked at earlier, that's what they're saying. And the problem is, as Paul says, we compare ourselves amongst ourselves, and in that we are not wise. We end up assuming that because we are better morally than the guys that we mix with, maybe live with, certainly work with, that's a fact. But that does not mean we are okay in God's eyes. And that does not mean that we have risen up in any sense to the imitation of Jesus that we should have. So then, David's sin was our sin. And I uh, encourage you at your own leisure to, to just keep reading through 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Psalm uh, 30, 32, Psalm 51, and see that this is you. And you will see in that sin something of your sins in essence. And again and again I say that it is not enough to say, well, I, I have not committed adultery. I have not murdered. Sure. You, you maybe you, you haven't done those things, but that is not the point. That is absolutely not the point. We are desperate sinners. We at times inevitably should be wired men and women. That's how we should be. And yet, feeling the certainty of our forgiveness. The deeper you realise your own sin, the, the greater will be your joy and your devotion. It's the whole story, isn't it, of Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. When he, he talks about the person who's forgiven 500 Pence or whatever, and the person who's forgiven 50, who's going to laugh at them all? The one who's forgiven the most will love the most. But we have all sinned, and so pushing that further, it is the one who perceives his or her sin the most, who will love the most. And so there will arise in us a strange, not paradox, but uh, a strange psychological condition, let's put it that way in human terms. That on one hand we are convicted of our sin. My, my sin, my sorrow is ever before me. 
David could say, even after he'd been forgiven. And yet, on the other hand, the, the joy and almost ecstasy of forgiveness, of joy, of finding God, of being able to talk freely and openly to people about this great salvation that we have surely received. And so they will see in us a humility that will be attractive. Because this world is sick and it is tired of arrogant religious people who are standing up there in pride and arrogance telling other people how great they are, basically, uh, directly or indirectly, uh, and, and telling them how to live their life. People are sick and tired, absolutely, of that. There's mere religion. People want to see something real. And the more real, the more credible. That is just so true. In Psalm 32, verse 9, David comments that men should learn, and women should learn from his experience, and not be as horses who have their mouths kept in with a bridle. Now in Psalm 39, verse 1, I think there is a bit of further teaching on this. Psalm 39, verse 1, where again, David, looking back, I think, on his experience, says, I said I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I kept in my mouth with a bridle. So David is looking back and saying, I said, or I used to say, yes, I will look at my ways, I will watch my walk, and I will keep myself in with a bridle. But in Psalm 32, verse 9, David says, look, I've been forgiven, and I want you to come to a place where you are not as a horse that has to have its mouth kept in with a bridle. I think we're putting the two psalms together. I think what he's saying is, earlier I tried to control my life by rigid self-control, uh, by insisting that I was strong enough to control myself. It's as if I put a bridle on myself and I yanked myself into form and into obedience. And he's now saying, that didn't work, but I have come, sadly, through my own failure. I have come to a position whereby I really am free. I don't need a bridle to yank me in the position to go the right way and to shut up uh, and not say the wrong things at the wrong time, etc. But I am will, but now I'm free because I've been forgiven and because I've found God. And I don't need that anymore. And I think that is one of the most profound lessons that we can take from this because none of us want to sin. We're all here. United in that, that we don't want to sin. But the question is, how not to? And for so many years we've all tried to do that, I'm sure. Put a bridle in your mouth and by iron will control yourself. And has it worked? No, it is not. Now, in a number of psalms written after the Bathsheba incident, David still talks about his integrity and his righteousness but not like he did before the Bathsheba incident. He really felt that God did count him as if he were righteous. Because, I mean, he was driven to this, wasn't he? He had a choice to either admit that he'd sinned, he committed the sin of presumption, adultery, murder, that was it, death. Or he had to find salvation some other way. There was no sacrifice he could offer. 
And he was driven to believe, believe, believe that God will forgive me, that God wants to forgive me, but on what basis can I be right with God? It must be that God will count righteousness, which is not mine, because I am not righteous, uh, that he will count that to me. No wonder. Paul picks him up and says, look, here's your model. Him and Abraham, these guys are your models. These are your paradigms. These are the, this is the path that you have to go. And if we can feel that, that God, by his grace, has counted the righteousness of the Lord Jesus to me, we also can find that joy and that, I want to say self-confidence, not in self, but that grace to go forward. And we shall be, Psalm 38, as a man that hears not the taunts of others against him, and in whose mouth are no rebukes of others. Irrelevant that people think bad of us, if God thinks so highly of me by his grace. And we can go on our way rejoicing.